lot of progress that uh, is being made. Uh, thanks for sharing that picture too. That was interesting. Uh, I know we've been talking about the breach, you know, and things like that, but um, today I wanted to talk to you about the journey to Mars and uh, get your thoughts on that. Um, kind of reminds me of the Star Trek episode of Elaine of Troyes, where uh, basically we had this uh, uh, race of people um, and uh, they, in order to form a peace agreement, they, they had to mar- have a marriage alliance. And so Enterprise was required to uh, transport um, one of the, the um, bride for the marriage. And uh, she had a physical capability when she cried that uh, if anyone touched her tears, uh, they'd be enslaved forever. And Kirk touched the, her tears um, inadvertently and uh, he, he became enslaved to this idea that he loved her. Um, and it kind of reminds me a little bit, um, you know, I've kind of wondered like in Mars, what would be like, like the dilithium crystals, for example, because the Elaine's had um, on their planet um, uh, uh, dilithium crystals and they didn't know it. They, they thought they were just pretty rocks. And, uh, you know, what the, what the advantage is to going to Mars is, what's that captivation uh, that maybe either the government wants to go to Mars or uh, why does private industry uh, have this captivation to go to Mars? And I'd just like to um, talk to you a little bit, some of your thoughts. Yeah. And I, um, so I, I think I, we've talked about this kind of offline that I'm, I come from the camp where I'm, I'm a huge Elon fan. So the progress he's made with um, advanced rocket technology, being able to land rockets backwards, and then his kind of reckless ambition to build this Starship rocket, which would be the, the, it'll be the largest rocket launched off of the Earth's surface as far as payloads concerned. Yeah, it, um, I was just talking last night with my son-in-law. We were uh, talking about Elon's uh, SpaceX. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I ch- uh, question is, is, you know, on the la- landing of the moon, th- there's this uh, journey w- to go put a, a manned uh, journey back to the moon and uh, ability to land the lunar lander, the eagles landed, you know, the, the famous phrase. Um, but in uh, a lot of the, when you think about like a rocket going up, you got this huge, explosions that are going underneath that uh, you're taking a, a combustible fuel hydrogen and it's ejecting out and it's just basically this rocket and uh and it's uh you know maybe out of a hundred times how many times does the trajectory get off and uh either the rocket explode in the air or uh, it uh, uh takes a nosedive back to the ground so his feet to go up into the um, high atmosphere and then to return back to Earth and then land on the Earth uh, was amazing. And uh, it, it's uh, maybe it was when because the moon had no atmosphere and um, um, that uh, they could come in really fast because I saw uh, the trajectory coming in was really quick. Uh, I think it was 24,000 miles an hour. And then they land the lunar lander on the on moon. So it's, it, it, his feats are really amazing. But. To get to Mars, it seems like uh, that is a huge, not only is it a technical feat, which he, he says that he wants to do things that are phenomenal, 
but it's also an economic feat. How many billions of dollars will it take to get to Mars? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I know from Elon's perspective, he sees Mars as a backup. So if we, if we can just get enough humans to Mars, then if anything catastrophic happens to the Earth, whether it's a nuclear war or, um, you know, an asteroid, you know, dec- decade long, long winter, I guess that could come from either one of them. He would see that as a backup. I, I guess when I say that out loud, I, you think you could imagine scenarios where even on earth, you could guarantee human survival for that long, you know, like in an underground bunker yeah. with some type of um, diesel fuel, like imagine a, a tanker of diesel fuel. That's, even if you don't have sunlight for 10 years, you can at least sustain life, a very limited life, not billions of people, but maybe 50 people underground. Um, and you just have to get, you know, get through the, the five to 10 years, however long it takes for plants to start growing again. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting because we've had those, uh, the winter that never ended in the 1800s where uh, Mount Tabora erupted and, uh, and, so that um, it was like what maybe three years cycle, like you were saying, three to four year cycle before things return back to normal. Yeah, and we um, along the that line of um, thinking, uh, we took the family up to Yellowstone months ago, and and I was fascinated just reading about the supervolcano and and kind of the the magnitude of that could have if it really went off. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like the potential for multiple growing seasons that would be lost. Like, I don't know if it was three, four or five. You kind of don't know. It depends on the size, um, the size of the event and how much ash is put in the air. But when you realize that you, you see the impact, you know, if we miss five growing seasons, that that's going to have a huge impact on the world. And it's kind of a, when you look at that super caldera, when it erupts, uh, you know, it's what a 600 mile effect. It can, uh, it's hard to imagine that much lava coming up out of the earth that fast. And then, uh, and then, you know, mm-hmm. the wind currents, it's going to affect the, uh, it's complex system. So uh, it'll actually change it. It'll create its own ecosystem. So the, the air currents will, will change. So the jet streams will change its course. Um, and and the ash you know that falls out from that is going to definitely get up into the higher atmosphere um, and you know you could see um, where it starts to block the sunlight and it gets cooler uh, so the earth's temperature could drop mm-hmm. um, as as uh, all those particles get up there you know going back to what you were saying earlier you're um, you know it kind of reminds me of interstellar where they they were going to make the journey to another planet mars um and in that storyline, uh, it turned out that people didn't actually go there. They were they were just going to send uh, uh, embryos or something like that, and then hope that uh, because they could get more in the future uh, from those embryos, then you know they could plant re- replant humanity. I guess on Mars this was the whole idea. But you're you're actually saying build colonies, build structures, um, you know it, things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think you have to if you if you send humans there, there you need to have you know backup structures in case there's you know some integrity issue. 
but you also need to build a sense of community because humans are very, uh, I, I think the concern about Mars is if you, if you were, if you or I were sent to Mars, it'd be a very depressing yeah. place to be. You, know, you can't, you can't go walking outside. Um, you, you're, you know, you'll be very lonely initially for the first couple of people that are sent there successfully. And so having a community, it, it it increases the likelihood of humans being able to withstand kind of that emotional tax of being there, but, you know, forget the the physical side of it because it, that's challenging enough, but I think the emotional side will be equally yeah, challenging. And, um, the isolation. So you'd have to have a, you know, a, an, enough of a population. Um, what was it? Six people that went to the moon. It was a uh, eight day uh, journey i think we we figured it out last night it was like an eight day journey four days to get there um i think one day uh they spent on the moon and then four or three or four days back um i think for a total of maybe eight or nine days i'm not sure for exactly the time but uh, uh you you could imagine like that effect in space we're talking you know to travel from the earth to mars is at least seven months unless you have an ion drive and uh, some sort of nuclear reactor to create the ions. Uh, let's suppose that you could get a, a speed of 200,000 miles an hour, um, which would be you know up to the higher ends of the ion drive. You slow down uh, enough so that you can land on Mars. You, you have robots and stuff that are assembling and build a dome. Um, how do you maintain a biosphere? I mean, up to... I. From my understanding, uh, there has been no long-term biosphere uh, that's been sustained in an artificial environment. Yeah, well, one of, um, and I know one of the ambitions, especially with Elon, is the the concept of terraforming Mars to make up for the atmosphere. So right now, the atmosphere is one percent of the the atmospheric pressure that we have on on earth so there so that won't work for you not to be in these biospheres or in these um spacesuits but there's enough co2 frozen co2 on mars if and, and i know there's some disagreement here you know some people think this is possible some people think it's impossible but technically if you were able to sublime um, a decent amount of that CO2 by increasing the planet's temperature by a couple degrees. And which sounds, you know, we're, we're essentially doing that here on earth. So if we could do that on Mars, um, that could increase the atmosphere as atmospheric pressure, not to the full amount. But um, I think I was reading right before this podcast online, I think they're estimating anywhere from a third to half of the atmosphere could be reached. So uh, so I think with with any ambitious, you know, effort done by humans like this, there there has to be a crawl, walk, run, and the crawl will definitely have to be, you know, a whole community of these pressurized uh, living quarters. But long term, there could be the possibility of terraforming Mars by increasing the, yeah, and that's the planet's a, temperature. Uh, interesting that that uh, um, as if you had. These and I wrote this in kind of a fictional book, but if you had these huge gigawatt or even maybe uh, larger watt uh, nuclear fusion reactors or something, and that you could melt the carbon dioxide at the poles, 
then you're releasing a lot of this CO2. Um, but one of the things that I read, uh, and I, maybe you can answer this too, is uh, that Mars has one-sixth the mass of Earth. Um, so you'd, I believe you'd weigh one-sixth of the mass. And one of the problems is, is if you cr were creating all this CO2, uh, would it... Uh, would the atmosphere go into space because they didn't have enough mass to sustain it? Or, or do you believe at one time that Mars did have an atmosphere um, and it was a sustainable uh, environment at one point? Um, re restate, restate that uh, last sentence. So, my, my Wi-Fi. Yeah, so, uh, well, one of the problems of, of melting the CO2 and water, possibly it could have some water. They're saying that Mars has water probably in its soil. And if you heat it up, there'd be moisture in the soil. Um, and also, you know, if you could heat up the CO2 at the caps, uh, Mars having less mass than the earth, would uh, the atmosphere just go out into space? Oh, okay. Yeah. Would it be lost? Um, and I, yeah, I I would imagine you would think that would be something that someone would have a definitive answer on. Um, I, I did see them talking about even with all the CO2, it's not enough for them to get to those um, atmospheric levels. And so some of the some of the more ambitious ideas were routing um, ammonium rich asteroids mm -hmm. to Mars to get to get the, the nitrogen. Um, which, which is, it's fun to think about, but you know, though, just getting to Mars sounds hard enough and we've shown we can do it, but routing asteroids <laughs> and getting nitrogen from them, that, that sounds impossible today. But I think one of the things I'm learning recently, I, so I, I do a lot of speaking with artificial intelligence and, and I try to find fun name. Um, oh, it's called, so if you search warp bubble. Um, so it requires a large amount of dark matter, but they, they've been able to simulate this on a supercomputer hmm. where they have these theoretical spaceships going faster than the speed of light with this concept of warp bubble. And I, w I grew up believing that it was impossible to go faster than the speed of light and seeing that in um, Star Trek was ridiculous. Hmm. And, and they, this was just recent since don't know, know the exact date when they changed their mind, but it, this went from being nonsensical to being possible. It, it doesn't mean that we would realize this technology even in the next hundred years. They're talking about doing some very small experiments on on Earth, but maybe 500 years from now, um, you could have space spaceships that could go faster than the speed of light. There's so many things that... Um are interesting today. I, I was uh, saw one article that was talking about a quadrillion dollars in natural resources, uh, minerals, if they could mine one asteroid. Uh, you know, and when you think about some of these asteroids that are out there, um, they're miles. Some of them are as big as a planet, and uh, you know, you can see the potential. But again, it's like the technology to to break up something that big and then to extract out the ore and then, you know, bring it back through the atmosphere on the ground. Uh, they're, they're talking, you know, have little capsules that 
can self-land, you know, kind of like a quadcopter that can be dropped into the high atmosphere and then it will land. Um, so I guess, you know, it's, you're, you're right. There's lots of technologies uh, that can make things feasible. Uh, one of the things that I, I have with the journey of Mars that uh, is really fascinating um, is Elon has always said that, you know, you have to have extremely high goals. You start with uh, the known, you start with the known, what you know, and, and he says study physics. Uh, so apparently his background was physics. He had a good understanding of it. And then from physics, uh, you start uh, looking at your assumptions. You look at the problems, the business problems that are presented. And then from there, uh, you start to present, uh, create brand new solutions. You abstract. And so that when he said that, I was like, well, that's uh, um, definitely how you create things is that you have to come up with an idea, an abstract. You look at the uh, basic building blocks and then you look at your assumptions and then you look for pattern. Um, when I when I look at Mars, how do you think um, it will go in terms of actually getting a plane or a spacecraft to navigate there? And then uh, do you see it as uh, just a one-way ticket? Yeah, I, I, I would see it as one-way ticket. And part of that is um, I, I, I know there's so much focus to get humans there because they see that as a huge milestone. As I've thought more about this, it, it it seems more reasonable to me to let's get more rovers there. Let's get more droids. If we could actually get a droid that was useful, you know, that could, you know, had textile and like, it, you know, had fingers and it could go and do different things. If you could get a bunch of droids there working and doing stuff and preparing for humans to arrive, I, I think the chances of our, our first trip with humans to be successful would be higher. I think if we're trying to get them there in the next 10 years, then I, I think it does have to be a one-way trip. I know I know that's kind of the, the dream of SpaceX that they don't want it to be a one-way trip because they have their rockets that can land backwards. As long as they can refuel, they can come back. Where that that's a big change from where we've been before because I technically we could come back, but I think the more the pessimist to me thinks that this is such a there's so many variables with a trip like this the likelihood of failure is high um it doesn't mean we're going to fail long term but the first you know the first humans going out there having issues or having a one-way trip or or dying or or high but i think even knowing that we're still willing to do it yeah it's a the the toll on the human body is going to be hard because you'll be not just you know uh, um, a few months in the space like if you go up in the space station I, you could you could stay you know a certain amount of time and then you have to come back to earth uh, you'd be out there in space for seven months there's radiation in space uh, there's high speed meteorites that are constantly could hit your spacecraft um, and then you know once you travel that you have to have enough food water to sustain you while you're traveling out there so that that you'd have to have a fairly large spacecraft which um, you've mentioned that they already have accounted for that and then uh, once you arrive you have to have some something established there so that you, you know you can you can survive for a certain amount of time yeah and real real quick to add to the the large spacecraft 
I was looking at the specs on this starship that um, Elon wants to build. And for the first version, um, it'll be able to carry 200,000 pounds in a low Earth orbit. But for the kind of the, the, the ambitious version that they're shooting for, it'd be over 300,000 pounds in a low Earth orbit. I know SpaceX has talked about refueling um, a spacecraft that's in low Earth orbit. So you can imagine getting 300,000 pounds of stuff into space, refueling that, and then sending it to Mars. That's a, that's, that's a lot of stuff to send to Mars. Um, as far as, you know, food, potentially people, and then droids and robotics to help. Yeah, I think the, you're right that the robots are going to be a key to uh, the success if this were if this does become a possibility, and also if there is a uh, more reoccurring schedule for arrival to Mars, bringing additional supplies. Um, I've also read that he had an idea that it, if you know, like say you have a tour of duty on Mars, that you could catch a ride back to Earth. So having not just the one way, uh, you'd have some way of producing fuel or have enough fuel to get to Mars and back. But it's, it's still a long ways out there. I mean, what is it, 70 million miles or something? Yeah. And I, and I think that's why I, th- I think that's why there should be a lot of focus on building up um, a sustainable civilization or community where if you were stuck on Mars for 20 years, it wouldn't be a death sentence. Yeah. And so today that, that would be, but as we kind of build out, um, I, I think the really exciting thing would be the breakthrough where they're able to harness energy on Mars, uh, you know, from geothermal or some other, or, you know, get, get enough solar in place where they can start doing things. It gets really exciting when they can start consuming um, planet resources whether that's, you know, doing electrolysis with water and producing fuel or, you know, geothermal to power these machines to go and do work, whether they're digging or building structures. Yeah, I think he's, and he's asked to, uh, he talks about uh, phenomenal breakthroughs in technology. And, uh, you know, when he built his electric car, the Tesla, he had to, uh, reduce the the um, increase the mileage that the electric car could go. Solve some of the take advantage of some of the technologies that were being used to solve the lithium uh, crystallizing problem, um, and then increase the energy capacity of the battery, um, and then create the manufacturing to produce um, a market. And well, the market already existed, but to provide uh, a supply for the market. And then uh, I think he's going to need to solve uh, high energy output because he'll need an ion drive to cover all that distance. Um, And then if you have an ion drive, then uh, what's the energy source behind that? Is that going to be, it has to be nuclear. So it has to be some sort of nuclear that uh, creates the propulsion that would allow him to go out that far and come back. Mm-hmm. So he would basically solve some of humanity's largest problems that we still face because we still have not solved the fusion reaction. I mean, that fusion, uh, high energy fusion, you're talking 300 million degrees, only short burst, micro burst of that high energy plasma. 
um, extremely dangerous if that containment field uh, breaks, breaches, um, things like that, you know, have to be uh, problems that he will have to look at and try to solve, but from maybe from a different perspective, going, like you said, going back to physics, getting a better understanding of what those problems are, you know, removing some of the politics associated with high energy fusion um, and, you know, coming up with the funding. So he's going to have to, in the private market, as you, you're probably you could test is uh, you have to come up with provable uh, products that people can believe in. Yeah. I think, um, I, I think SpaceX, I'm trying to think what is actually public. Um, they, they, they've been pretty successful with, um, raising capital and they, they've got ways to, they, they've got ways besides space travel to bring in, um, additional value into that company. Cause that, that, that's the limiting resources. How, how do you guarantee, a billion a year in new investment yeah. going into SpaceX. And if you can, then they can continue their vision. Um, but uh, one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about the fusion drive today, when a spaceship goes up and explodes, it's sad, but imagine a star, a starship going up with a new a fusion drive and it explodes in the atmosphere. Mm. Like that's, that's a huge problem. It's not just, oh, look at that explosion. It broke my window. It's, oh, look at the nuclear fallout. Um, what are the long-term consequences for the people below? Yeah, uh, one of the things that NASA built was um, what they call a magneto, magneto hydrodynamic drive. And in other words, they build a, a energy plasma stream, and then it creates electric current. Uh, so th it's basically like a nuclear reaction. Uh, but it's generating a plasma stream. And then from that, they're able to generate current. If they could, if Elon could solve the problem of uh, high energy ion streams in space, then I think that he could then have ability to go out to Mars and come back. Uh, just putting huge, huge tanks on uh, the spacecraft and to travel that far and back is going to be a huge feat technology wise to use conventional technology. So he has to go to more streamlined technologies, which would mean that he would then push against uh, the conventional limits of the existing technologies that we use right now for energy production. And so it's going to be interesting because he seems to have solved some of the problems with energy storage in the form of batteries and, and rechargeable batteries. Now, the question is, is how do you create an energy density capable of going out 70 million miles and coming back? Yeah. And kind of jumping back into that where maybe initially we don't have to come back because we're sending, um, robots. we're not just sending, yeah, we're not just sending one robot. We're sending a hundred. And I think a big, big part of this to be successful is we need to have the artificial intelligence improvements that these can be, um, kind of mission-driven droids because hmm. for you to control them remotely where you're trying to, you know, do like an augmented reality situation that because of the distance, I don't think that'll work very well. But if you're giving these droids instructions on this is what I need you to do, you know, this is your task for the day. 
then I think um, then then that becomes much more exciting. I, yeah, and I like I like where you're going with that because that kind of just in, in the last few minutes I'd like you to just share uh, your your challenge. We saw AlphaGo. Uh, he had the AI system uh, beat the the world's famous Go player, and it was done uh, ten out of nine times, or let's say nine out of ten times he won. Uh, the machine won. Then he took Alpha Zero and trained that against AlphaGo. Um, and then they they uh, took that into a video game, one of the most complex video games, and uh, easily defeated the, some of the world's best uh, players. You're getting ready for um, your challenge. Do you want you want to talk on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we've been working on um, teaching AI to play the Xbox, and this this um, this has been a harder challenge just on the high performance computing side because we're doing it in full 4K resolution, 60 frames per second. So there's a massive amount of data that we're ingesting into our computers. Um, so that's been the most challenging part as far as teaching AI to, to do well with short-term reward. That, so having AI go around and use guns in a first-person shooter game is from the AI perspective, that's not as big of a technical breakthrough as maybe a long-term strategy game like StarCraft. But the, the fun thing with this project is it, it's definitely more controversial. It makes people start thinking because if you're watching, if you're watching how AI is behaving in this virtual environment, you're essentially getting the first preview or a glimpse into autonomous droid warfare um, because you'll be able to look at, you know, we're, we're already learning a lot of things about what the AI is going to be latching on to and what the opportunities are. And, and then on the flip side, you can enter that virtual environment yourself. So we can go join that virtual environment and interact and try to kill the AI and have it try to kill us. Um, and there's, there's a very controversial part of this in that we're demonstrating doability on an online gaming console where we're, we're engaging with people that haven't given their consent. And who's to say that isn't already happening at scale? Who's to say that there isn't another country that's invested $50 million into doing autonomous war on these first-person shooter games on the Xbox and PlayStation? Because that's a big part of getting ready to understand how to deliver weaponized autonomous war with droids is you need to really nail it in a virtual system and these online games are a great way to do that yeah and it's like our our uh discussion on the doomsday machine the hive mind you know it's these are web uh ai can become a weapon so dangerous that you should never use and it's interesting that you you brought that up the breach into the to, into the real world uh i sent you that link where they it shows the, that some of the um they're using AI now for targeting on tanks. Uh, so it's, it's targeting automatically. Uh, they're using AI on uh, pre-landing of the Marines. So before the Marines hit the shore, they send in a, a, a boat that's fully autonomous, uh, semi-autonomous, but it, it, it clears the path, you know, against enemy hostile combatants. Um, you've got uh, swarm warfare now that uh, small little devices that have, insect-like behavior, like bee-like behavior uh, that can find targets and neutralize them. 
yeah, you know, we're just starting to see this breach occur that you're talking about. Yeah, and it's there's a lot coming out of this where just by studying the data and looking at it, we're realizing that not only um, so the, the stuff we're building out currently is AI at any moment in time, 60 frames per second, AI knows the probability that it will kill an enemy combatant. But the other thing that's more specific, it also knows the probability that it will um, sustain damage doing so. Hmm. And then it also knows the probability that it can get a headshot. And so all, and all this information is available on the table for AI at any moment to make a decision. So if it, if it thinks it can take a headshot, it'll take it. If it thinks it's going to you know, bring on enough damage that could risk its existence, then it, it might avoid. And so that's been really fascinating, just understanding these submodels and how they impact um, you know, kind of the, the larger decoder. Yeah, and I think that approach is really good because you have low-level modules that that make those decisions, and they're very accurate in those decisions. And the high-level modules take those uh, uh, inputs, and then using probability make the decision. One thing I've noticed with the AI, even while I watched uh, uh, StarCraft, that when it beat uh, the two two teams, I watched the whole thing. It took forever to get through it, but. Uh, I noticed early on, maybe in the first 25%, you could see that the machine was going to win. It did a couple surprise moves, and the human players never did recover totally off of it. So that was already within the first 25%. Uh, it was already moving in favor of the machine. Yeah. And it, so there's micro adjustments. They, it starts to win on micro adjustments. Yeah, and that'll be huge for first-person shooters um, because AI can see things faster. It's not emotional. Um, it, it can just comprehend and multitask um, a, a lot better. And then when it comes to the granular control, if it, it if it does need to shoot someone far away, that's much much easier for AI to do. Yeah, it's a it's a again we like go back to the idea of we got can you teach the machine morality? You know, the soldier has to have a certain moral code. He doesn't, you know, he has to choose when to be engaged and when not to be engaged, when to follow orders, you know, so forth. And so uh, there's a moral consciousness that governs his actions and accountability. So he he's not only has to have a moral guideline, he has to be accountable for his actions too. Yeah. Uh, and, and, maybe that's something that won't come with AI initially because it'll just be, you know, kind of that mission driven. How was it designed? What, what is it supposed to do? Yeah. It finds signal. It makes decisions. It, it, uh, it, it goes for those short term incentives. Well, our time's up. Um, thanks. This has been enlightening and, uh, enjoyed this podcast. Yeah. Thanks, David. Hey, talk to you later, Ben. Okay. See you. So just in conclusion, uh, Elaine of Troyes was the Star Trek episode where uh, Captain Kirk takes Elaine uh, to the New World um, as a part of a marriage alliance. And very similar, um, the technology required to combine uh, to bring man to Mars uh, is like a you know, almost an impossible mission, but uh, the quest itself 
um, has some noble aspects to it. Uh, one of to do the impossible, to travel a great immense of space, uh, to go in and explore the possibility of colonization of other worlds, um, possibly to restore an atmosphere that had been lost, an ancient atmosphere possibly that had been lost, a Garden of Eden, returned Mars back to a Garden of Eden, uh, possibly in, uh, within that context, uh, creates fear, fills the imagination and uh, connects to some ancient myths. Um, it was also during the, that particular episode that uh, Pitri um, attempted to educate uh, Elena on the um, uh, on the customs and cultures of Troyes, and uh, he offered her uh, valuable uh, jewels and and um, also gifts. And she, in return, stabbed him. Um, he managed to survive. But if man is able to travel across the expanse, seven months in space, um, also being exposed to radiation, uh, high-speed uh, micrometeors traveling over 100,000 miles an hour, um, also the intense boredom of being in seven months in isolation, and uh, zero gravity, the effects of zero gravity on the body. If he was able to survive that, then there's the possibility of a marriage. Um, the other thing that was interesting is that the, con the there was a conspir conspiracy with on the Enterprise uh, where the um, one of the people that uh, one of the bodyguards chief bodyguard um, who his name was Crypton uh, he fell in love with Elaine and he wanted to sabotage the mission basically causing the Enterprise war pigeons to explode um, so he had an all or nothing wish death wish I guess to uh, either have her or not have her and if he didn't, uh, to prevent the marriage. And the Klingons um, had conspired with him because they were secretly wanting um, to prevent the marriage and then gain control of the dilithium crystals. And it somewhat makes you wonder if there's any parallels to the mission to Mars. It's going to cost a billion dollars at least. Um, and... To come up with the money uh, for that, it has to come from government sponsorship. So, um, you know, what with the intense uh, expenditures going to this uh, race to space and, and uh, expenses going out from the taxpayer, um, you know, it has a defeating effect in the sense that it increases national debt. So um, if it was private enterprise alone, I'm all for it. Go, uh, they can come up with the innovations to reach it. But if it, uh, it comes at the expense of the taxpayer, um, uh, I don't like that idea. And uh, also, you know, man's race to space. When Kennedy uh, challenged us to United States to be the first to put a man on the moon, that fueled the beginning of a technology race uh, against Russia 
And so um, that was a turning point for American technology. It showed that uh, Americans were capable of innovating, solving the impossible problems, and then putting a man on the moon and returning him safely to home. Um, so, you know, there is somewhat an all or nothing uh, aspect uh, that seems to be going on uh, in the play to get to Mars. And, uh, and also, it cannot just be a single trip. It needs to have a round trip capability. And the frequency to the visits to Mars are going to have to be uh, uh, quite a bit. And also, um, as was talked about on the podcast, uh, robots will definitely play a key factor in building the structures and the living habitats for people at Mars. And, you know, it's not, I don't see how millions of people would be traveling to Mars unless uh, there were some sort of uh, space commercial flights there and uh, capability to take uh, thousands of people at a time.